Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. He then sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as a fellowship offering to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. He then took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against the leaders of Israel, of the Israelites, pardon me. They saw God and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here and I'll give you the tablets of stone with the law and commands I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his aide, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And the second reading is from Luke 9. Um, verses 28 to 36, which in your Bibles is on page 733. Luke 9, 28 to 36. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves, 
and told no one at that time what they had seen. Thanks, Jared. Uh, friends, let's bow in prayer as we um, look at God's word, shall we? Father, we want to thank you that uh, you give us your spirit who enlightens your word to our minds and changes our hearts. We pray now, we pray for myself as I speak, that I would speak uh, clearly and accurately uh, and passionately from your word as I ought. Father, we pray that uh, you would give us a, uh, a sense of quietness, that we would be freed from things which might otherwise distract us, and by your spirit that we would have some spiritual understanding of what your word is saying, that we would know more of Jesus and, and your plan for us, and that we would live uh, with Christ at the centre of our lives. And we pray these things in his precious name. Amen. Recently, the Mount Isa Police uh, issued a press release on the My Police website, and uh, this is how it read, and I quote. <clears throat> it said, This morning, office, officers from the Mount Isa Hoverboard Unit were called to attend a traffic crash on Ro Ro Rodeo Drive, a silver sedan had crashed into a power pole near the cinema. When questioned what speed he was doing, a driver stated that he was doing 88 miles per hour. A 17-year-old man was charged and was in possession of a licence which expired over 30 years ago. Investigations into the vehicle and into what a flux capacitor is are still ongoing. Uh, end of quote. That's a real press release from the Mount Isa Police, uh, which of course was issued on October the 21st, 2015, uh, being the exact date that a certain DeLorean motor vehicle slash time machine uh, was supposed to appear. At least it was supposed to appear according to the 1989 movie Back to the Future 2. Although I, I'm puzzled as to how it is that Marty McFly ended up in Mount Isa, but anyway, that's another story. <laughs> I love those kind of stories, don't you? I love stories about, and movies for that matter, about uh, people going back into the past or as here, uh, uh, someone appearing from the past or people going into the future. Uh, where actually, according to the movie, and this is a bit scary, we are actually the future. Uh, that was back in 1989, and they were thinking of some future time, 2015. And guess what, facts, folks? That's us. In fact, we're beyond the future. We're 2000, and it makes you feel old, doesn't it, uh, when that sort of thing happens? The Bible, of course, contains no concept of time travel. Uh, doesn't need to, because it does teach us, it reveals to us the reality of immortality. That is that uh, even when we die, we do actually live forever. 
We continue to, death is not the end of existence. We continue to live forever. And so uh, in Luke chapter 9, when Jesus asked his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? Do you remember what they said? They said, well, there's a few different opinions about this Jesus. Uh, Some say that you are John the Baptist. And remember that John the Baptist had just recently been, you know, executed. Um, Others say that, well, you're Elijah, a figure from eight to nine hundred years ago. And then there are some who say that you're you're one of the prophets from from long ago who's who's come back to life. Now, that was their view, that... uh, Jesus was a figure from the past who's arrived now in their present. But they they were wrong, weren't they? Uh, Jesus was not some great figure from Israel's past. Peter got it right. Peter said, well, my personal opinion is that you are the Christ of God. That's who you are. Now, this morning, we look at the, uh, the very next event which... Luke tells us uh, about the life of Jesus. Uh, In chapter 9 of Luke's Gospel, verse 28 to 37, which would be great to have open in front of you, Luke tells us about the miraculous appearing of two great men of God from the very distant past. Before we dive into that, however... We've still got some unfinished business from last Sunday. You might, if you were here last Sunday, you might recall that I said that there was a lot packed into that passage and that was why we had this week as well, a good reason why we had this week as well. Because uh, in the verse which is immediately before today's passage, Jesus has spoken about a number of things. He's spoken about uh, the fact that he must uh, be rejected, he must die, he must be raised from the dead... And then he goes on to talk about his second coming in judgment. And then he makes a rather curious promise, a very strange promise. Have a, have a look at it, verse 27. He says, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Do you see that? Now, what does, he, what does he mean by that? That seems a very strange promise to make. And uh, to be honest, there's a, a number of different views that people come up with as to what Jesus meant by some of you will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Uh, the view, I think, which makes sense is to, is to, to read that in the context of what's about to happen. In the context, it seems that, uh, well, he's talking to the 12, isn't he? And he's saying some of them, so it's uh, some amongst the 12, uh, and most likely that's referring to Peter, James and John because of what happens next. And this idea of not having to die before they see the kingdom of God Well, that seems to make sense when you look at what happens next as well. A revelation of the kingdom of God 
but you're not going to have to die in order to see and some of you will get to see it. So the question then is, well, okay, then what is it that happens next in this story? Uh, so verse 28, it's now about, about eight days after Jesus has said these things about his rejection, his death, his raising again, his coming again, and the promise that he's just made. And now he takes three of those 12, he takes Peter, James and John, they, they go up a mountain, uh, actually it could be translated as the mountain, as if the people who originally read it know, knew exactly what mountain it meant or it was symbolic of another mountain. But they went up a mountain and they went up for the purpose of prayer, that is to, to meet with God, to communicate with God. On the mountain, the disciples started to doze off to sleep. Um, that's nothing. No one would do that here in a sermon, would they? Uh, doze off to sleep? No? Okay, that, that woke them up. <laughs> uh, they started to doze off to sleep, but something happened to Jesus. Uh, and that is that Jesus was, was changed. He was changed physically. He was changed very dramatically in his appearance. Now, Matthew and Mark, in their accounts of this, they, they say that Jesus was transfigured. That's not a word which we use very often, but uh, in a sense that we might say, if someone's character changes, we might say that they've been transformed. If someone's figure changes, we, we might say that they've been transfigured, and that's what has happened here. His face changed, and his, his clothes became a were dazzling. They were, they were white, whiter than you could wash any clothing and get them. His clothes were described as being like a flash of lightning. That's hard to imagine what, what that's like. Well, if I look at that spotlight up there facing down on me, that's like lightning in my face. Think about li uh, looking at a fluorescent globe. Um, you know, that's what Jesus' clothes were like for them. So he was changed, he was transfigured. And then something else happens. In verse 30, two men appeared with him in glorious splendor. Now, when you think about this, it's interesting. Because the, the crowds, they had wrongly concluded that Jesus might be Elijah or one of the prophets from long ago that's been raised and come back to life? Um, well, guess what? In a sense, that's now happened. Uh, not in respect to Jesus, but in respect to these two men. Because two great figures from the past, Moses and Elijah, are now in the present and then in verses 34 to 35, a, a cloud appeared and, and enveloped them, is the word that it uses, and a voice spoke to them from out of the cloud. Now, what, a, what an amazing experience. Uh, and, and you've got to think, well, what's it all about? 
I mean, what's the, is this just some mysterious back-to-the-future kind of moment? Uh, why did God the Father cause Moses and Elijah, of all the people, why did he cause them to appear? What does this all mean? Now, it seems to me that key to understanding this is found in verse 31. Because uh, Luke tells us that when Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus on the mountain, they just didn't stand around looking at each other. They actually, they talked. They had a conversation with one another. Now, it'd be fascinating to know all the details of everything that they said, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be fascinating? Well, we don't need to know all of the details. Luke tells us what we do need to, to know and it's what we see in verses 30 and 31. So let's have a look at those two verses. Verse 30, 31. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now, I... I'm a little bit reluctant to, to talk about Greek words in sermons because our English translations are fine, they're good, they're, they're great. You don't need to know Greek to understand the Bible or the New Testament. But sometimes, just sometimes, it does give us some helpful insights and I think that this here is a case in point. Because the, uh, the Greek word which is translated as departure is, is a word which every one of you knows and you hardly ever use it except when you're reading the Bible. Uh, it's the word exodus. Exodus is the Greek word for departure. You see that sometimes in English words, don't you? Like ex, the ex, you know, always means out, doesn't it? Exit and so on. Uh, Greek word is ex horos, which means uh, out, out, the and the way, the way out. It's the, it's the departure, and so Exodus means departure. So the the Old Testament book of Exodus could, I, I guess, you could say, could be called the Old Testament book of departure, which is what it actually means. Uh, now, this, this word exodus, the Greek word exodus, it's, it's not a very common word to use. It's only used three times in the New Testament. Um, it's used, Peter uses it to refer to his, his uh, coming death. Uh, it's used in, in Hebrews to refer to the exodus uh, out of Egypt. And it's used here in respect to what uh, Moses and Elijah and Jesus were talking about. Now, remember, Jesus has just informed his disciples that he, is, he must die at the hands of the, of the religious leaders who would turn him over. It's going to happen. It must happen. This is not far off. And so, when one of the two men speaking to Jesus about 
his exodus, his departure, is Moses, then we know that this is not any ordinary kind of death. And it causes us to, to look backwards to the, to the person and the work of Moses in the book of Exodus. And when we do so, you know what? The transfiguration actually becomes a little bit clearer. How about we, earlier on, Jared read to us from Exodus chapter 24. Can we just go back to that for a moment? Um, and uh, you'll find it on page 55 or something like that, around that area. Most of us should be familiar with this passage because we worked through Exodus last year and I think it was in May that we did a whole sermon on uh, Exodus chapter 24. And the context is that it's not long since God had miraculously rescued Israel out of their slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt, the, the Exodus, what we call the Exodus. And now in chapter 24, the, the Israelites are gathered at the base of the mountain, Mount Sinai, and a covenant is made between God and Israel. Moses cuts a covenant that Israel is agreeing to obey uh, the laws of God and God is promising to be their God and be the one who cares for them. And then, as we saw in the passages Jared read to us, uh, in, in verses, uh, Moses with 70 elders goes up the mountain where amazingly they saw God and we're told that they actually, they actually ate a meal uh, to celebrate that event. Uh, in verses 15 through to 18, Moses goes up the mountain again, this time almost by himself. He goes up with Aaron and with a, with a servant. But in effect, this is Moses going up the mountain where for six days the, the glory cloud of the Lord settled on the mountain and then on the seventh day, a voice came out of, the, out of the cloud. And that voice, of course, was God speaking to Moses. Later on in Exodus, in, in chapter 34, on another occasion, Moses had been up the mountain. He came, he came down from the mountain. And when he came down from the mountain, he was, he was transfigured. He was, his face was changed. His face was dazzling, it, it glowed, it, it, it radiated so much that people were afraid of him. People, no one would go near Moses until it sort of went back to normal. Now think about that. Mountain, cloud, God speaking, transfigured face, kind of reminds you of something else, doesn't it? kind of reminds you of what happened in Luke chapter 9 with respect not to Moses but to Jesus. One of the 
One of the keys to understanding the Bible uh, and to understanding the Bible well is to have in our minds the, the big picture, the, the storyline of the Bible. Because I think one of the problems is that sometimes we can, we can think of, of the Bible as sort of like a, a patchwork, like a, particularly the Old Testament, like a, a collection of, of stories, of ideas, of people and so on, like a patchwork that... Uh, they all tell us about God in their different ways and so on. And that's understandable because there is great variety in the Old Testament in terms just of the forms of literature. So there's much of the Old Testament which is, which is narrative. There's, there's poetry like in the Psalms. There's, there's wisdom literature, like in Proverbs and Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes and so on. And there's prophecy, um, you know, Isaiah, Ezekiel and the other prophets and so on. So there's this interesting collection of different styles of literature, genre, if you like, that um, gives it a great richness, great texture as we read and learn about God and through these different, different ways and different authors and so on. But that's not to say that the Bible is a patchwork of collection of ideas uh, and stories that somehow relate to God because there's actually, through all of that, uh, there is a storyline of the Bible. And it's a storyline which tells us that, that God is a loving God who has a plan to, to save his people and to establish his kingdom uh, in, and that we, we can be part of that. that that's the, the big picture. That's the storyline of the Bible and all of the different parts of the Old Testament with the different styles of literature uh, are feed into that, uh, like ribbons that... Uh, uh, that tie together to form that storyline. And much of the Old Testament, uh, what we see in the Old, Old Testament, uh, is that it paints pictures of, of models or of, um, of prototypes of, uh, which, which actually help us to understand God better and lead us into a deeper understanding of a reality that would come later. And so we see one of those models in the very early part of the Old Testament story, in Moses and the Exodus from Egypt. But we also see it much later in the Old Testament story as well. So, for example, uh, if having looked at the second book of the Old Testament. Let's go to the very last book of the Old Testament. And you, you might want to open up at um, the, the prophet Malachi on page 677. And Malachi chapter 4, very short chapter of the Bible. It's the very last chapter of the Old Testament. And uh, let's just have a look at the, the final two verses of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4 verse Verse 5 and verse 6. And this is what God says through the prophet. He says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah 
before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. And so ends the Old Testament. Nice note to end on, isn't it? Now, what this is saying is that uh, God is going to send Elijah. Elijah had long ago been departed. His, His exodus was that he went up in a whirlwind. But uh, this Malachi is saying is that Elijah is going to appear again. And and this will be at the very end, uh, at at a future time. Now, John the Baptist fulfilled that prophecy. Um, Jesus himself said that uh, in uh, Mark chapter 9, uh, verse 13. Uh, which is just after Mark's account of the transfiguration, uh, and that is that the John the Baptist is the Elijah figure. He is the one who comes, who prepares the way for the Lord. Uh, he is the one who, uh, who calls on people to repent, to turn back, to, for Israel to turn back to its covenantal relationship uh, with God. And so... That has already happened in the person of John the Baptist. But now, on the mountain, in front of Peter, James and John, Elijah himself has appeared. And when that happens, when that happens, you know. You know that everything that Moses and the, the exodus was a symbol of, a pointer towards, well, the real thing is about to happen. The exodus from Egypt was a great and dreadful day of the Lord. It was dreadful for those who were, for the Egyptians, who were actually judged for their rejection of God. It was a great day, though, for those who were saved out of slavery. It was a great and dreadful day of the Lord. But Malachi prophesied that after Elijah comes again, the great and dreadful day of the Lord will come. Now, as I said earlier, it would be fascinating to know everything that Moses and Elijah and Jesus chatted about on the mountain. But uh, Luke tells us enough. He tells us that they spoke about the exodus of Jesus, which was about to, which he himself was about to bring to fulfilment in Jerusalem. Now, I wonder how you would react if you were there at the time. The three disciples didn't quite get it, did they? And if we were them, I think we'd be a bit uh, puzzled as well. If we lived their side of the resurrection, uh, we would have been uh, in the same situation as they were. If you were there at the time, how would you react? Um, would you be lost for words? 
Well, Peter was a man who was never lost for words. Uh, in fact, he was the kind of guy, you know, when, kind of person, you know when there's silence in a conversation and you feel that you've just got a need to say something just to fill that silence? And I do that and I put my foot in it all the time, but uh, that's, that was Peter, right? Peter had a crack at saying something. Have a look at it in verse 33. In verse 33, he says, as the, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Well, he got that right, didn't he? Well, that's a bit of understatement, you'd have to say. Good for us to be here. <laughs> Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. How about that? It's, it's not his most brilliant suggestion. Uh, however, Luke is sympathetic. He, he tells us in brackets there that poor Peter, he just didn't know what he was saying. <laughs> he didn't know what to say. Mark in his gospel actually elaborates on that and he says, yeah, Peter didn't know what to say and he says, you know why? Because the disciples were, were terrified. They were scared stiff at what they were seeing. And I guess we would be the same as well. But <clears throat> here's a thought as to why Peter said what he said. It, it, it was certainly inappropriate, but it didn't just kind of blubber out of his mouth. He did have something in mind, because if you have a look at verse 33, what were Moses and Elijah doing when Peter made this suggestion about the three shelters? What were they doing? They were, have a look at it, verse 33, they were, they were leaving, weren't they? They were, they were, they were heading out of there. They were, they were about to disappear. And so Peter wants to be hospitable. <laughs> Peter wants to build some shelters for them, some places for them so that they can stay. And he thinks, well, why don't we, we can build one for Jesus as well, as if Jesus is just like one of them. Let's be hospitable. Let's not lose this moment. And yet lose it, they must. Because it's not the point. While Peter was speaking, Luke tells us that the cloud appeared and enveloped them. The word that's translated there as enveloped is equivalent to the word that's used in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, uh, which is used to describe the glory when the glory cloud of the Lord filled the temple. Sometimes Christians talk about the Shekinah glory of the Lord. Well, this is the equivalent word to the Shekinah glory. This is... This is something special that's going on here uh, with this enveloping of them. And so when the voice comes from the cloud, well, just like Moses on Mount Sinai, you know who's talking. This is the word from God. This is the voice of God and the message from God himself to the three disciples is this he is my son 
whom I have chosen, listen to him. You see, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And then in verse 36, God has spoken. Moses and Elijah, they're gone. And Jesus is standing there alone. So that as we'll see, I think next week, uh, when we come to verse 51, when Luke tells us that the time approached for Jesus to be, to be taken up to heaven, in verse 51, Luke says that he resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem where he himself would fulfill his exodus, the great exodus. Whereas the sacrificial lamb of the exodus, Jesus dies in our place, freeing us from our Egypt, freeing us from the penalty and the power and the slavery of sin so that forgiven people, we can be in a new covenant relationship, a new covenant meaning that we can belong to God's eternal kingdom. Um, during the week, I went to a party. Thanks, Janine, for turning 22. That was great. Some of you were there as well. It was a themed birthday party, a Back to the Future themed birthday party. Thanks for the idea about the introduction as well. That was good. I had fun. I, I especially enjoyed being on the losing team of the Back to the Future trivia quiz. There was a whole lot, they were hard questions. Who wrote Back to the Future? I got no idea. There was one question that I knew the answer to, and I think the answer to the question went something like this. Uh, Janine and Jared can, can correct me later if I'm wrong on the question, but I think the question was, in Back to the Future 2, which rock and roll song did Marty McFly play on stage and who wrote the song? Or whose song was it? Anyone know the answer to that? Thanks, Steve. Johnny Be Good was the song and it was sung by... Chuck, thank you, Dave. Terrific guys. <laughs> you know, I love those movies. I love, I love the Back to the Future movies because, uh, you know, it just... It, 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 the imagination comes alive, doesn't it? It's great. But I, I get a little bit confused because they keep on moving backwards and forwards in time periods, and I don't know whether they're coming or they're going, uh, but there is a time, there, there is a storyline, and you've, you've, got to, you've got to pay attention to the storyline if you're going to understand each of the movies. The Bible has a storyline. It's a storyline about God's salvation and God's kingdom and our part of that. So that what it means is that no matter what part of the Bible we're reading, whether Old Testament or whether part of the New Testament, 
it all points us in the same direction. And that is, it points us in the direction of the one who is at the very centre of God's plan and purpose for, for, for reality, and that is his son, Jesus. The Old Testament, the law and the prophets, they point us to all of the motifs and the themes in the Old Testament of Moses, Exodus, Mount Sinai, priesthood, sacrifices, a people of God, all points us in the direction of Jesus. The New Testament points us to Jesus, backwards to what Jesus, who Jesus is and how he fulfills all of those themes and motifs of the Old Testament in what he has done on the cross and his resurrection and forwards in terms of the heavenly reality, the kingdom of God that he has, that he did his exodus for so that we can be forgiven people living with God in his throne room forever and ever. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says that no matter how many promises that God has made, they find their yes in Jesus. And we've seen that today, haven't we? Uh, on the mountain, as Moses and Elijah appeared for a while, but faded away in the presence of the one to whom they pointed, in the presence of Jesus, so that he would now bring about his own exodus for our sakes. So that's the transfiguration. Um, we should spend some time praying about that now, so let's just do that. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your great plan of salvation through Jesus. We want to thank you for the great themes of the Old Testament that point us to him. We thank you that we live on this side of the resurrection so that we know how it is that you have fulfilled your great plan and purpose for the salvation of people, that we might be people who live with you in relationship with you now and forevermore. Father, we uh, just want to thank you for that. We want to pray that Jesus would, would be the very centre of, of who we are as human beings, as who we are as your created people. Father, that we might love him and serve him and trust in him all our days. And we ask this in his name. Amen.